Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. actually totally highlighting something that I found really interesting. The book came out about three weeks ago, and there's this strange phenomenon where if you get a book published, people expect you to know how to use a microphone, which I don't understand at all. And the, I was at a reading last week, and I very earnestly asked the coordinator, you know, when this is over, can you give me like a remedial lesson on how to use this? And he looked at me like I was crazy, and I wanted to be like, I was in a room typing for four years. Like, I have no idea what, you know... Anyway, he, he thought I was nuts. Um, in Case of Emergency is about Piper, uh, this EMT working in L.A. Um, and at the beginning of the book, she's kind of, she's actually completely a rookie. And then as the book goes along, she gets a little saltier and a little more used to it. <clears throat> so I'm going to jump, we're just going to jump in. Um, to a kind of dense, there's this phenomenon when you work as an EMT where you can sign up. Usually the shifts are 24 hours, but you can sign up for 48 hour shifts, 72 hour shifts, and you make more in the way of overtime. But of course, it's a little insane because you're not really sleeping or eating or doing anything remotely healthy for a really long period of time. Um, so I'm just going to read some little snippets from when Piper decides to work a 72 hour shift and how that goes. My new partner is what they call a black cloud, and in eight hours' time, we run a hemorrhagic stroke, a trip and fall, a nausea vomiting, a crying baby stuck in a high chair, and a lawnmower accident where much of the time was spent studiously searching for the man's missing thumb. It feels so good to be lost in the work chasing 911 like a drug addict, the sounds of sirens and assessments and station banter filling my head. I don't even mind that my new partner buddy is always underfoot and about as useful as an extra gurney, his safety glasses neatly wrapped around the back of his collar even during meals, because it gives me more to do. Coffee coursing through my veins, watching my hands fly from med box to patient to steering wheel to paperwork, anticipating the needs of whatever person of the moment is in front of me. I discover that it all goes so quickly, one call after another, the minutes rushing by, the hours soaring. Buddy and I have barely cleared the Santa Monica Trauma Center when we get our sixth call for a 40-year-old difficulty breather at 76th Street and Victoria Avenue. I tear back to our district, ignoring Buddy's suggestion to take the 10 East during rush hour. At the intersection of two small residential streets, our diff breather is easy enough to spot. She alternates between shrieking and hyperventilating, wild hair ballooning over an orange bathrobe and pink miniskirt, and she keeps pointing at something in the middle of the street. We park the gurney on the sidewalk and I try to calm her down. Ma'am, what seems to be the problem? Do something, she bellows, both of her hands gripping my forearm. Look at my little Figueroa. Despite her rapid breathing, about 40 breaths a minute, she's got great skin color and a healthy tidal volume. The clump of fur in the middle of the street was once a cat. She breaks down into sobs again. I awkwardly pat her padded orange sleeve. I'm so sorry, ma'am. I say, really, I am. 
Buddy's fingers jab into our entangled limbs, trying to get the woman's pulse as I look around, half curious if I can catch the guilty look of the person who ran it over. The neighbors fidget in silence. I coax the woman to take a seat on the gurney, explaining that we need to take a look at her. If I can get her away from her pet, she might calm down enough for a proper assessment. She refuses. I insist. She places two flat palms on my chest and shoves me. Finally, I get it. She isn't our patient. She never was. From her gesturing, I realize she expects us to do something to save her cat. Buddy pulls his safety glasses from around his collar and puts them on. Well, maybe we could try, he begins, and moves toward the smear of mangled fur and muscle. Hooking him by the elbow, I yank Buddy so hard he stumbles backward and almost falls. Sorry, I say, and pull him out of the woman's earshot. I explain to him that supposing the cat was a viable patient and not a mutilated carcass, we don't know how to do animal CPR and we don't have the right equipment for it. Even our pediatric oxygen mask wouldn't fit correctly over a cat's nose. Buddy's face is like a wind-up toy coming to a slow halt. His mouth opens and closes, stretching a blank stare. All of a sudden, I want to shake this rookie's neck until I see true comprehension streak his eyes. A cat. A fucking cat. We didn't work up a woman who'd been stabbed to death who'd only just gone cold because there was no chance of saving her, and he wants to work up a scattered piece of roadkill. I beg the neighbors to help the howling woman, reiterating, there's nothing we can do. One man, long, lean, with kind gray eyes, takes a few steps toward her, his hands spread wide. We're going to jump to the second day, so now she's got a different partner who's named Carl. Carl has been so easy to work with while I've been one of the zombies J-Rock is always talking about. I stopped trying to compensate for my monotone hollowness about 12 hours ago when I realized I still had 40 hours left on this unending shift. It hasn't helped that we've been on con home duty all day, taking elders to dialysis from their houses or to the ER from a rest home, wrapping up shunts, removing bedpans, rolling blankly staring bodies onto the gurney like logs. But it's somehow worse when we take a spry, intelligent 80-year-old man to the hospital for a broken hip, because he looks around at the bodies piled on the gurneys, at the bottleneck shape of the traffic flowing into the emergency department, and he says sadly, we were never meant to live this long. I think I'm ready to go now. Carl and I skip dinner. We opt for ice cream instead and swivel on the stools like children. You're going to be the cat lady type, Carl says, and I can't really argue. He swears up and down when he turns 60 he's going to get the words do not resuscitate tattooed on his sternum, or maybe even on his forehead. At 0217 we get woken to do yet another transfer, this time a middle-aged patient who's a pickup from the Huntington Park Surgical Center. But when we try to drive the woman home, she can't remember her zip code or any cross streets. The hospital face sheet only has a numeric address, and there are so many varieties of Central Avenue in the Thomas Guide. Central Avenue is running east, west, north, south, diagonal. What side of the city does she live on? I have the bright idea to call someone who knows her. I pull over on the big, empty street a half mile from the hospital and set the hazards blinking. Once in a while, a car zooms by and the rig slowly rocks from side to side. Carl in the back, digging through our patient's purse, exhaustion affecting him now, too finds the tattered piece of paper with a phone number on it. I dial it on my phone, forgetting it's the middle of the night, not recognizing the New York area code, and wake the woman up. Her voice, brittle and paper thin over the bad connection, grows with warmth and volume as the conversation progresses. She didn't know her sister had been in the hospital. After helping me out with the address, she says with a choke in her voice, tell her to call me when she gets home, please. I assure her, hang up, put the paper slip back again. 
I drive my hands at a perfect 10 and 2 on the wheel. I know where I'm headed. Easy does it. It's a simple transfer. I'm just tired. Only 28 more hours to go. No problem. Ridiculous, I whisper. But then I give myself over to it, to the rolling grief that pummels me from all sides. Something about that concerned voice on the phone and the empty dark streets and the sad lonely character in the back. The one who doesn't remember where she lives, who didn't tell her sister about her medical problems, who is now a double amputee. When we get to the house and struggle to fit her through the narrow hallways in our new wheelchair, she tells us to lock the door on our way out. There are seven deadbolts and nothing inside worth stealing. I remind her with a sense of responsibility, call your sister, okay? She looks at me, nods reluctantly, and just before we squeeze ourselves out and into the night gasping for fresh air, I see her pick up the old rotary receiver and stare at it. Okay, we're going to jump to day three. She's starting to hallucinate at this point, just so you have a reference. <laughs> Jumbled bones, aching teeth, my eyes feel puffy, and where's my other boot? I shuffle around, pants pulled loosely over gym shorts, the belt buckle swinging wildly. Found it, practically behind the television, of course. I should take a shower, at least put on new socks, because these are glued to the bottom of, but I just put the boot on. People are watching, eyes on me, straighten up, look normal, everything's fine, and there's Buddy, standing nervous and tall, you remember him. Hi, Buddy, I croak. My hands are like the flapping wings of a pigeon trying to locate the carabiner on my belt loop, forgetting that my belt is lower than my waist because my pants aren't on. Here you go. I hand him the rig keys. You're driving today, can't. Dangerous. He looks at his palm like he's never seen keys before. Attempt naps. Buddy wakes you for calls. Punch him in the arm and call him by your brother's name. Remember where you are and apologize. Coffee stopped working a long time ago. Drink it anyway. You no longer eat solid food. You're close to having a widespread organ mutiny. The kid with the snap clavicle and sprained wrist who jumped her bicycle from the roof to the pool on a dare points at all the objects in the rig compartments with her good hand. What is that? And that? What does it do? Why? The woman with too many missing teeth to count. She grabs a 14-gauge needle out of the med box and raises it over her head as if to plunge it into the nearest heart. You aren't going to put one of these in me, no sir. I look at her, unable to move or think, adrenaline like a dull old friend. A firefighter politely asks for the needle back. Everyone exhales when his request works. At the hospital, she laughs, and her cackling mouth reveals her few remaining teeth, crooked and stained. Halfway through my shift with Buddy, as if surfacing from a long movie, I remember with a jolt that Carl and I had a GSW last night. How we arrived at a parking lot around 0400 to find two firefighter paramedics, one getting a line ready, the other sitting on the ground, holding our patient in his lap. The lead medic was new, probably on his first big trauma call, and wore a stunned expression. It would have almost been sort of funny the way the whole thing brought to mind a badly done TV melodrama. The boy in his lap looked like Jesus after the crucifixion, lolling and ghastly, and the lead medic kept asking, can I get some help? as if he'd forgotten who we were, as if he hadn't already run four calls with us that day, if it weren't for the fact that the boy was so clearly a goner shot not once but five times. The image of the two of them on the ground like that only lasted a second, because soon the four of us were working hard to keep him alive. We dropped him off alive, and who knows if he stayed that way. 
I massage the hinge of my jaw with my index fingers, feeling two persistent nubs kick back against the pads of my fingertips. Eight more hours to go. I can't remember what happens after that. Um, so one of the things that happens in this book is uh, every now and then you kind of get these little medical vignettes. It's like descriptions of the body, maybe the lungs or the inner ear or the heart or something like that. And partially it's just to kind of have a break from the 911 stuff. Um, and then also it's just, well, I find it really pretty beautiful and compelling, just like what happens at a biological level in our bodies every day. Um, so I'm going to read this one. This one's about the nervous system, which is just so complicated and great and weird. So I'll just read this one. <clears throat> All the cells in your body replace themselves many times over the course of your lifetime with the exception of neurons. What sprung to life remains till death. Neurons of varying size, width, length, and complexity. Neurons shaped like shooting stars, like trees, like insects. As familiar in appearance as they are startling and indescribable, with names like spiny stellates and star pyramidal. This alien machinery is part of you, as biological as your bones and eyes and teeth. When you think about neurons, you think about your brain, about spidery cell bodies stretching out in all directions within the confines of your supercomputer's gelatinous folds. But what about sensory neurons, the layers and layers of them living just under the surface of your skin? If you want to talk about emotions, if you want to talk about what's visceral, you start here. Every, every memory ever formed starts with sensory input. All experience begins with the subtlest of subconscious observations. The location of your hands in space, the textures of all the surfaces intersecting with your body, the weight of your clothing, the temperature of the air. Your experiences start with your posture, how relaxed or tense your shoulders are, if you're hungry, if you need to pee. Picture your skin, the body's largest organ, stain-resistant, waterproof. Picture the peripheral nervous system like the tentacles of a jellyfish, nerves shooting out from the cracks of your spine, white-hot and responsive, winding around bones, snaking across neck and clavicle, twisting through the muscles of hands and feet. These nerves culminate in neurons embedded in your skin, raw ends clawing for the surface, as if trying to break the seal where water meets sky. Some sensory neurons specialize in pressure changes, others in temperature, and still others in the spatial arrangement of your limbs. They work together to create a composite picture. When your face grows hot, that flash of crimson could be a sign of shame or of blushing happiness or of visible fury. What distinguishes your emotions is how all the various feedback integrates. Say your sensory neurons collect the following observations. Your clothes feel tight, your seat uncomfortable, your voice too loud. As you sit fidgeting, eyes retreating into their sockets, the skin of your forehead constricting, your jaw clamped tight. Your amygdala stitches together these incoming sensations and singularly labels them anger. Expansive breathing and bursting sensation, joy. Rising pulse and trembling hands, fear. Keep in mind what science has yet to quantify or comprehend is the mechanism by which your past gets triggered. Old emotions spike abruptly with piercing visceral conviction. You smell the stink of the long brown cigarettes your grandmother used to smoke and you can see and sense and hear her. The way her hip bones jutted out from flower patterned dresses, the yellow fingernails gripping your shoulders, the dry as a leaf laugh. 
All this visceral sensitivity stored in your antenna-studded nervous system. Your skin, all that separates you from constant daily stimuli. And you, you are a living conduit. Um, so I'm just going to read one more last bit and then open it up to questions if there are any. Um, Piper, at the beginning of the book, has this huge crush on this woman that she's never met. And then as things go along, she actually meets, gets up the courage to talk to her and um, they start dating. And Ayla has quite a few problems herself, a um, few neurological issues. Um, she's got post-traumatic stress and then also a head injury from having served in Iraq. So it's a really light, fluffy book is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, so this is just a very short scene from when they go on a road trip together to Monterey. <clears throat> During our last night in Monterey, Ayla's body startles mine awake, her muscles twitching in her sleep, and at first I'm in a panic, tumbling toward reality from a dream, my hair plastered in my neck with sweat. I listen hard and hear nothing. My eyes adjust in the darkness. I realize, it, I realize it is actually very early morning that today is Sunday, our last day here. Her muscles twitch again, a small spasm in her lower back that travels to the hand curled underneath my shoulders. Impulses course through reflexive limbs. I think of sparks of electricity like frenzied fireflies, glowing, darting, bursting, extinguishing, all without ever having had a particular destination. Just before falling back asleep, I am seized with the conviction that I must remember this tomorrow when I am on an ambulance, but what exactly I must remember is not clear. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> Are there any questions? Yes, sir. I was. <laughs> yeah, I, I worked as an EMT for three years here. Um, few, like Inglewood, Hawthorne. Yeah. So a lot of those experiences got funneled into this. Yeah. Yeah. So I know this is from nonfiction. Yeah. I mean, I think for one thing, I actually don't have a very good memory. <laughs> so if it had been nonfiction, I would have been really conflicted about, God, did this happen there or then, or who was it, and was this the same call, or am I merging two calls? So there's something about the freedom of that, even just with the EMT stuff, but then also to be, like, there's a lot of invention in here around personal stuff, and um, it also kind of opened the door to do a ton of research about things, but then kind of draw it in however I wanted to, um, as opposed to, yeah, it definitely felt more free as opposed to strict, I would say, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Yeah. It 
Especially the EMT stuff. I mean, kind of the way it's structured is that in the beginning when she's a rookie, um, the timing is very slowed down. It's kind of like she's moving very slowly and there's all this activity around her and she can't keep up. And then by the end, she's the one who's like split second. Oh, you've got this going on. Oh, this is what's happening. So as she gets used to the lifestyle, the writing shifts a lot to kind of mimic that. Yeah. But also I was told to not told by professionals to not read anything too slow paced because instead of reading you want to be like bam you know so that's part of it <laughs> yeah. yeah Mm-hmm. I can tell you're a writer <laughs> um, it took let's see say it took about three years, a little over three years, and then the editing process took about another year. So four years total. Um, and then, yeah, I, when I first started, I really thought I was going to put like every interesting EMT call I'd ever gone on in the book. And I don't, maybe 10% of them made it in, because I think what ended up happening is like, the more my main character took shape and really became her own person, the more that dictated what kinds of calls needed to happen to her. So it was like, at first it was all about me, <laughs> and then as, as the book started to take shape, it became all about her. So it was like, okay, which, which call do I have in my memory boxes that will kind of fit with what's happening to her right now? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that three years is a short time for an EMT. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, no, it's a, it's a good question. But it's sort of funny when you're in that work where you're like, wow, three years doing this. Um, I had kind of bizarre reasons for becoming an EMT. Part of it is I was um, trying to be a stunt person. And if you're, an EMT is enough to make it so you can be a, a set medic on movies so that was kind of this way of like oh here's here's how I can kind of meet stunt coordinators and stunt people and do this other kind of work um, which turned out to just not be for me at all so then I was like I'm gonna go do this other thing and just kind of do this sort of like bare bones basic honest work and see how it feels um, but I think for a lot of people being an EMT is really a stepping stone um, I don't. I know almost no one that stays in there too long because it's. They tend to go on to become like firefighters, police officers, doctors, nurses. Um, yeah, there's definitely a, a burnout rate. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think they were more charged when they were mine. There was something, there's that weird thing about writing fiction where you're kind of playing God a little bit. Um, and it, it creates a little bit of distance where you can kind of, so it's like the, even the calls that actually happened to me, after a while I sort of forgot that they actually happened to me because they became so much part of the book. Um, so there's this way now, like sometimes I'll be in the middle of a reading and I'll just have this weird like, Oh, this happened, you know, it's like this 
sort of transportive, oh, right, because um, it's almost like I've forgotten about it because of shaping the book. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, yeah. Eat, uh, yeah. <laughs> Would not, no, I didn't do it. Some people were were really willing to sign up for that. I mean, it depends some on the area you work in. If you if you work in a really busy area, it's um, very masochistic thing to do. Um, but yeah, I worked. I did it a couple times, and I was like, I'm not doing this ever again. <laughs> Especially for me, because I I need sleep. I'm like I get real grouchy if I haven't slept in three days. So yeah. Um, for those of us who don't. Right. I mean, like, your image of a writer is this person sitting in a room by themselves and your computer and in this mind generating stories. And, you know, I know you as a dancer and as a very physical person. And so, before I came over, I was thinking, wow, I wonder how the creative process of being a dancer and being a writer, like, what is the relationship? And in the writing, I heard so much physicality that it almost seemed like I could hear the body in the, in the, in the text itself. Oh, cool. So I'm curious, like, what is it like physically sitting there? <laughs> it's know, bad for your back. <laughs> when you're such a mover and a dynamic person. Yeah. Is, is, is that experience of of the physical life and the embodied life something that's important to you or that's foregrounded to you? Like, in writing. writing your process? I mean, I think I'm always... Like, where do I start? Um, they're, they're completely different processes, which has been such a trip to discover. Um, and I didn't start to kind of figure out the differences until I would try to go from, I always have to write in the morning, so I get up really early and I write. And then there was a couple of days where I tried to go from writing to a dance class and dance, and I like couldn't dance <laughs> because I'd been so so internal and so in my head um, that to then kind of turn around and try to, at some point I started thinking of it as like a spiral that's going in and then trying to reverse the spiral and send it out so that I could go from this heavy inward focus to kind of seeing the world again and the space around me and being like, oh right, I have this body that can move as opposed to everything happening on the page which can feel two-dimensional after a while. Um, so that's been a really... And one is very lonely, like writing is very lonely and then dance is like... It's in a big room with lots of other people and it's collaborative and um, it's almost always a shared experience. So that is also wildly different. Um, but definitely I think my sort of territory as a writer has a lot to do with the body and trying to find ways to put some of that into words if I can. So. Yeah. All right. I, oh, sorry. Yes. I was curious about your, um, your desire to write and going through the process of being in an MFA and mm -hmm. that, like that incendiary to write and compose, how that was affected by being in an I think, I mean, definitely an MFA program isn't for everyone, but I think I really took to it partially because I have a background in performance. So 
it helped me to be around people and be in a culture of it and be talking about writing and reading each other's writing and it's not I wouldn't say it's collaborative in the same way but to have that um, just that community really helps me not feel quite so alone in it um, and get, get good tips from other people or kind of see how people were growing it's a really cool thing um, but I, I don't know I mean I don't think it teaches you how to write either or, or that it should I don't think it should even but um, but it can give you some tools and it can give you some some people in your corner which is a great feeling yeah <laughs> yeah Um, I'm really excited about the next book, so I don't hate that question. But um, if I if I was struggling, I'd be like, "Damn it, Adam!" <laughs> I know. Come on, I'm here. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm working on a new book now. It's it's a really strange. There's like six main characters, so it feels like the opposite of this one, where you just have the narrator. Um, but part of it was inspired by this really bizarre disease. Um, so it's again back to the body but in a very different way there's this disease that turns muscle into bone um, it's a really incredibly horrible disease super rare only one in two million people get it but um, it, it basically ossifies you from the inside out um, so and, and that I still kind of loosely work in the medical field and it just raises a lot of interesting things for me um, that this disease exists and it doesn't have a cure because something like heart disease, there's, it's very profitable to make cures and treatments and that kind of thing for when you have that big of a clientele, basically. But if there's this really rare disease, no one cares. Like, you can't get the research for it, you can't get the funding for it, you don't get the cures for it. So I kind of want to create this, I have a plan, but I'm not going to go too into it. So that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I wish. <clears throat> I worked part-time. Well, I started writing it as an EMT, which was really hard, and then went to MFA program and also worked part-time, so I was doing both. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> what do you guys think? <laughs> Um, so we'll just do, uh, we'll set up a table here and you guys can get your book signed. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by and we hope to see you soon.